Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We're looking at the book of 1 Peter this morning. And the book is, the themes just keep running through the book, but I want to talk about a couple of them today. A couple that I want to talk about today are strongly in the book, the how and why that we should behave as Christians, how we should live, and the how and why we suffer, and how these two things are related to one another. The book has a, I think, a, like a short introduction to itself in chapter 1 that I want us to read before we read our text. And the introduction is going to be much longer than the text, but that's okay, so you know. Let's read together First Peter chapter 1, two selections, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And then to verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each month's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time, the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And now our text today, from 1 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. For the one who desires life, to love and see good days, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to understand your word, understand your character, See clearly, see more clearly, begin to see it all. Help us, Lord. Be merciful to us. Open our eyes to who you are. Open our eyes and hearts to who we are so that we may find life and life eternal through Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. Our text is, if you noticed in your Bible, the, probably the text, the print is actually all in capital letters. That means that the text is a quote from the Old Testament. And so this text from chapter 3 of 1 Peter is from the Psalm 34, where David is fleeing from Saul and is oppressed by Saul, and where he cries out to God 
And then he says those words, who is the man who desires life? If you desire life, what life do you desire? The one who desires life, it says at the beginning of the text, the one who desires life to love and see good days. If you desire life, what kind of life do you desire? Do you desire the forever life in Christ? When I was a child, I have early, early memories. I don't have a lot of memories of childhood, but some memories I do have that are so vivid, and this is one of them. I desired life. I desired life and was conscious of it to the point that at night I did not want to go to bed. Now you think, well, oh yeah, that's like every child. They don't want to go to bed. But have you ever thought about why? Well, I didn't want to go to bed, and I knew why. I, I thought that if I went to sleep and was unconscious, I would not be alive for that time. I would not have conscious life. Now, I didn't think I wouldn't wake up the next morning. What I thought was I was being robbed of my life by going to sleep. I was unconscious, and I was being robbed. And so I resisted it. It's not that I didn't have something really important to do, except that I just wanted to be And I thought, well, as long as I'm conscious, I'm engaged in it. It's happening. I'm with it. I want to know. I want to know. If you know my office here in the building, I always want to know. I wanted the office that faced into the main office so I could see what was going on all the time, right? So I got that office. But I wanted that as a child. I wanted life, and I wanted just conscious life, just just life. You know, in, in Psalm... Uh, 127, we're told that it's vain to rise up early or to retire late. That's good to know, right? It's vain to rise up early or to retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. Now, the, the implication is that not that we shouldn't rise up early or that sometimes we must go to bed late or that we shouldn't labor. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that God has a... We don't have to worry about those things, try to strive for them, because God even gives to his people when they're unconscious. And in my mind, when I was a child, I did not go to sleep with faith. So I went to sleep resisting, fighting. I wanted life. I wanted conscious life. Later, I was aware that this changed because later I began to realize that I didn't just have this enemy of unconsciousness that I was facing, you know, sleep. But I had a bigger problem. And the bigger problem was that I knew, I I realized, I came to understand that I was heading for a day when something would happen more drastic than a temporary interruption of my consciousness. What was that? Death. I became very aware that one day I was going to die. And I thought, no, 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 I'll cease. I'll cease altogether. And it was at this point that something happened in me that God used to say, better find out if there's anything that can be done about that. Okay? So I went and talked to my mother. I was very young. And we began to pray about my heart and my soul and my eternal state. This changed. And it changed me. But in order to get to that point, I had to realize I needed something else. I needed somebody else who was going to do something because uh, I had enough problems just trying to stay awake and not falling asleep at night. What am I going to do about the death issue, right? I needed somebody else. And so Hebrews 11.6, I don't know that I, I could have explained to you when I was a child that I came, became knowledgeable about Hebrews 11.6, but I certainly am now. And it says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
that is God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I started to seek God as a child. And I was looking for the reward that he could bring to me. And that reward was the very life I wanted. But I did not realize all tons and tons of those implications, right? How that life, what it was going to mean. There are so many things. There are lots of things I still don't realize. But there were a lot of things I didn't realize. But I began to seek him. And with, with faith, it is impossible to please God without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. So as you think about this idea of life, where do you see yourself? Have you begun looking yet for the forever life? Or are you still just trying to stay awake as long as you can and grab on to all the things you can do? Okay? Secondly, this, is, this life, this forever life, is life in Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is the life. He is the foundation of this forever life. 1 Peter 1, that I read earlier, he has uh, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you forever. An inheritance that's forever. But it's through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. The just for the unjust. Some people think they can have eternal life through some other means. Even people who have some concept of who Jesus is. But some people, without any concept of who Jesus is, they, they think and project on eternity and they say, I can, I can have eternal life. By, by, I can do it by, by thinking a certain way or having a standard of things that I do or standard of things I don't do. I'll make a list. I think that these things will get me eternal life if I do them, and I think that these things will get me eternal life if I don't do them, and they make a list. It was kind of like the Pharisees. They thought they could have a righteousness by making a list. I've done that. I remember being a, a child and talking to my best friend, and we made a contract that we would never smoke, and I can't remember the other thing. It might have been cuss, yes, but I thought later I wondered if it was drinking. Those were baddies to us, right? So we made this compact that we would never smoke or drink. I thought, wow, if I can keep that. And I've kept it for a long time. Nope, blew it. So some people think if I just keep a few few rules. Other people think if I do something really big, something magnanimous, some big gesture, that will do it for me. So I'm getting into the pay-it-forward culture. I'm going to go to Wendy's, and I'm going through the line, and I'm paying for the car behind me. And that's going to to please God. That's going to make me get this eternal life that I need. And so we have this kind of righteous by paying it forward kind of thinking in our minds, right? Some people think, well, I'll have that eternal life because I'll uh, I'll just be better than everybody else. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be better than most people. I had a guy who worked for Frito-Lay, and I was going, taking product into the back door of a Kroger store a lot of years ago. I think it's been nearly 30 years ago. And I was talking to him about his soul. And we talked for a while, and, and, and I, I was pressing him at, at the state of his soul, and he says, well, I'm better than most people. I'm better than most people. Well, in myself, I was thinking at the time, I know a lot of people. And I know you. Right? So I was thinking, that's just me thinking, right? But what's the real way we should all think about this? It isn't most people that we're being compared to. 
We don't all sin and fall short of the glory of most people. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And without the work of Jesus Christ and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and the the just being made the payment for the unjust, without that happening, we have no hope. It is life. It is life in Jesus Christ. One of the things this that uh, chapter 1 says at the beginning is that it's written to those who are born again. And born again was a, a term, we don't use it so much anymore because it's fall, fallen out of vogue. But it, boy, there was a time way back when Jimmy Carter was running for president. Anybody remember Jimmy Carter running for president? Okay, a few people left. And he talked about being born again, and that just won him a lot of cred with the conservative evangelicals. He, when he talked about being born again, everybody thought, wow, well, he might be a liberal Democrat, but wow, he's born again. And then it wasn't so polarized, I think, as it is now. But the fact of the matter was, he won a lot of votes of the conservative evangelical world and became the president. Because, I think in part, because he talked about being born again. And today we have a lot of people who are caught up, just like they were caught up in that time, Christians in, during the time of Jimmy Carter being validated by the fact that they could identify with a president who was born again. Well, now we're caught up in the fact that we can identify with Kanye West being born again or Chris Pratt being born again. And do I have an opposition to President Carter or Kanye West or Chris Pratt being born again? Do you think I don't want them to know Jesus Christ and have eternal life? Well, I certainly do. But if I get any kind of validation from that, I'm, I'm, off, the, I'm off the path. <laughs> I'm off the path because I'll tell you what, four certain celebrities are going to let me down and they're going to let you down. You're not going to have uh, find validation in that. You need to find your validation in Jesus Christ because the gospel that we hope in is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of some celebrity that is around us. Being born again has big meaning in 1 Peter. It has big meaning to God. And we had better focus ourselves on that and not on the popular claims and understandings of what the term means. What does the Bible say about being born again? Being born again. Where do you see yourself in this? Have you been born again, made alive spiritually in Jesus Christ by the power of God through faith? Have you been born again? If you're not sure, is it because you struggle with your sin and unworthiness? Does that give you doubts about the state of being born again? Is it because you struggle with your sins and unworthiness? Or maybe, is it because you just haven't spent any time thinking about it at all. You don't give it a thought. It's a dangerous place to be. Where do you see yourself in this? Secondly, our scripture says that the man who desires life must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Those who desire life to love and see good days must have evidence, proof of their faith. In 1 Peter 1, verse 7, it says, it says well, it says in verse 1 or 6, he says, uh, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold Okay, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor and revel- at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Proof of your faith. Proof of your faith. Matthew Henry says, first, every faithful Christian is daily receiving the salvation of his soul. Salvation is one permanent thing begun in this life, not interrupted by death, and continued through all eternity. These believers had the beginnings of heaven in the possession of holiness and a heavenly mind, in their duties and communion with God, in the earnest, 
in the earnest of the inheritance and the witness of the divine spirit. Secondly, it is lawful for a Christian to make the salvation of his soul his end, the glory of God, and our own felicity. That's intense happiness, (laughs) our own felicity. The glory of God and our own intense happiness are so connected that if we regularly seek the one, we must obtain the other. When I was a child, I had some personal motives behind seeking God. I wanted my intense happiness. I wanted my own felicity. Okay? And so, the proof of our faith, what does it look like? It's not... The proof of our faith here is not indicating justification before God by works or by earning our salvation. We're not proving it by earning our salvation. It is the type of justification described in James, a demonstration of the presence of true faith in the believer. So James says, if your brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, this is chapter 2, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, I have faith. Be warm and filled. I have faith. Be warm and filled. I have faith. Sorry you're hungry. I have faith. It's pretty cold today. Be warm. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith from, show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. No one earns justification before God, but everyone, having received that justification as a gift by faith, is expected to evidence, to justify its existence within them by their behavior. It's the proof. The proof. Proof of your faith. How you live. How you exist. Proof evidenced by our behavior. We must turn away from evil and do good. This is repentance and sanctification. Turning away from evil and doing good. So 1 Peter uh, 1.13 as I read, says, prepare your minds for action. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Preparing your minds for action has a military tone, doesn't it? Get ready. Get ready for action. God is calling us to follow him in his holy character and not to be conformed to our former lusts. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, is very much like 1 Peter in its progression as a letter. It has a lot of the same components. It talks a lot about what it's like to live as this person, a wife, a husband, a child, a slave, all under authority. It has all these kinds of components, and it also has the components of this war action, prepare for action, get ready. Right, And then it has also the whole emphasis on prayer, how much prayer is important. There's just a lot of similarities between the two. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. So Ephesians 6 says, Be be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take the the full armor of God so that you can resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. So what? You put on the the loins, you gird your loins with truth, you put on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you take up the shield of faith, and you put on the helmet of salvation. Have you ever wondered about how the armor of God works? (laughs) What do you have in your mind? Do you have in mind that plastic uh, armor of God playset? 
that we give to our kids and grandkids and they put it on, right? You have this kind of thing in mind. What does it look like? What is this? What is, do you envision some invisible implements that we have to somehow get ourselves dressed in and that we can reach for our invisible sword and so that we can swing it around at the invisible powers around us? Or maybe you take your Bible so that you have something a little more concrete and you hold it up and you start swinging it around because it's the sword of the Spirit, right? What is the armor of God? How, is it, how are we clad in it? We're clad in the armor of God. The reason why both Ephesians and 1 Peter talk so much about prayer is that prayer is the process, is part of the process in which, by which we're clad in the armor of God. We're, our minds are renewed. We have his word. We have faith. But these things are all used and exercised. These implements are actually taken out and exercised in the context of resisting and turning from evil and turning to do good. The minute you are trying to turn from evil, you're going to reach for something to help you. And the minute you're trying to turn to do good, you're going to reach for something to help you do good. And it might be that it'll be you climbing down on your knees. It might be that you'll open up your Bible. It might be that you'll present to your mind a scripture verse that tells you that this and this and this is how God's people resist. It might be that you'll say, uh, at the very foundation, when assailed, you might say, no, no. No, without faith it is impossible to please God. He is. He is. That's the armor of God. He is. We resist and stand by turning away from evil and doing good. The armor of God helps and protects us in the process of doing so. This is spiritual warfare. This is behaving contrary to the will of the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. This is how we oppose them, (laughs) by turning away from evil and doing good. There is a great resistance that we face when we turn away from evil to do good. And it's the struggle within ourselves. We have a love for this world that we must eradicate. It might be evidenced when we're children by our desire not to go to sleep at night. It might still be evidenced by our not wanting to go to sleep at night, honestly. But did you ever consider that laying your head down at night could just be an act of faith and obedience to God, an act of Wonderful sanctification. Just laying your head down. Oh yeah, you give to your beloved in in their sleep. I don't have to worry. James 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? We have a struggle in our mind. And the struggle in our mind and in our hearts is that we, we desire friendship with the world. It's, it's clawing for us. It's, it's grasping at us. He says, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Makes himself an enemy of God. He says, we're double-minded. Double-minded. Unstable. Can't be both. Passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. We want this life and eternal life. We want this conscious life and everything it represents to us, however you want to say it, whatever this conscious life means to you, and we want eternal life. But the two are incompatible. Those who want eternal life can't have friendship with the world, conscious life. And those who want conscious life can't have God, because he's opposed to it. Okay? It's the flesh. So the passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. 
And so we know we need to turn from our sin and we struggle inside and we have all these little inside internal fights that are going on. And we might say, well, I'll, just as, I'll get as close to the sin as I can. So I can have both. I'll get as close to the sin as I can, but I won't cross any lines. I'll only go to some of those movies and I'll only play some of those uh, video games and I'll only go to some of those parties with some of those people. I'll just get as close as I can you know, to, to get in just so I can have a little of my life now, and, you know, but not cross the line. Not going to cross any lines. Another thing we do is we say, well, if I change, I'll be weird. If I stop sinning and I start loving life, I'll be weird. And, but weird to who? To God? To people in this world? God says he calls us his peculiar people, but it doesn't mean weird. His, his very special, particular people. Some of us think that we can, you know, have it both ways and we'll just hide it. We'll hide it. I'll carry it, I'll hide it. Nobody else will see it. But listen, everything's going to be revealed. There's a day, you might hide it through your entire life, and there's a day coming when everything in our hearts, everything is going to be opened up. Opened up. But do you think you can hide it from the omniscient God? Does God not know? Some things we, sometimes we think, well, I can control it. I'll control it. I'll keep it under control. I'll keep my, and I'll keep it under control. Sometimes we think, we'll deal with it a little at a time. You know, I'll, I've been smoking pot with my buddies uh, once a week. I'm going to cut down to every two weeks. And then I've got a long-term plan. I'll cut down to once a month. And then every six months, I'll do it. And, and then I'll slowly, I'll take, I can do this. See, all so far, it's all in our power, isn't it? All in our power. It's not, the, it's not, it's not effective, <laughs> and there isn't anything miraculous about it. It's still all in our power. We think, oh, there's time for that later. Well, there's later I can do that. I want to get my fun in before that happens. I want to get my fun in. I want to get my, my time in. Time for that later. In our minds, that, and then we struggle. We, we're, we're like pressed hard. And, and finally, we just say, if we can't, if we realize that we, we've exhausted all of the arguments, we just think, well, if I don't have it, I'll die. If I can't have that, I, won't, I can't survive. If I can't, I'll die. I can't live without it. There's a, a reference in C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, to where he has characters in the book who are people with specific sins who go and meet characters who are people who are in glory. And the people in glory come to help the people, to convince the people with specific sins to leave their specific sins. And one of the characters is a man with lusts. And his lusts is represented by him standing there, and on his shoulder there is a lizard, an ugly lizard, whispering in his ear. That's his lust. And the man is in bondage to this lizard, whispering in his ear. And the one who comes to help him and to convince him to give it up is, is reaching to say, can I kill it? I'll kill it for you. I'll kill it for you. And the wizard, the lizard at one point is turning and whispering, if he, if he kills me, you'll die too. If he kills me, you'll die too. And so the man says out loud, I know it will kill me. And the glorified one coming to kill the lizard says, it won't, but supposing it did. And the guy says, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. That's what happens with our sins. They become abhorrent even to us. And we know it. There's only one thing we will certainly die without. And that's Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. 
You can give up everything else. Every other lizard that could possibly manifest on your shoulder could be given up, could be grabbed and twisted and broken and thrown aside. And you would not die if you had Jesus Christ. You would not die. We must. Proof of our faith is evidenced in the opposition that we encounter. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Be sober and alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, sinking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Well, what does this look like, Satan prowling around? I mean, I've read this verse many, 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 many times. But I, in preparing for this, I'd never noticed before the context so, so much as I do this time. And I thought about Satan, and I, I believe in his, the person and the reality of his prowling and, devo- and, and devouring, seeking devouring, um, and his roaring. But I never thought about how it actually meets with us, Right? So he says that in the context that the same experiences are being accomplished by the brethren, the experiences of Satan prowling around and roaring. And so uh, what does it mean that Satan is prowling around and roaring? Well, what is Satan's roaring but the opposition of people around us? And what is his devouring but our falling prey and giving in to going into the sins that he and they call, call us to go into. You have Satan roaring all around you all the time. People wanting you to sin, and you have people around you that you've seen him devour, who have turned away from following Christ and have found themselves turned back into sin. You've seen that. It's not like mystical. It's real. It's real. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time is already past. The time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, sexual perversions, carousing. If you want to understand the word carousing, just think of Mardi Gras, because it's a word that actually describes masks people who are going about carousing, okay? Mardi Gras. The time's already passed for you to go to Mardi Gras, or to like Mardi Gras, or to watch the Mardi Gras show on TV, And then, what does it say? In all this, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they maligned you. They malign you. Well, they're surprised that you're not turning from, they're surprised that you are turning from sin. And so they malign you. And that maligning is the roar of the devil. They're roaring at you. Can you feel it? Can you hear it? They're roaring at you. And if you submit to their pressures and their roaring, you will be devoured. They're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Dissipation, uh, I had a verse in the Bible that I always felt really safe from, and that was, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. And I've never been drunk to my knowledge, and so I thought, well, I can just skip that one. Don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation. Until I read what dissipation the word actually means. What the word actually means is, it means unsaved. It just means unsaved. And the other places that it's used, like this one, it's talking about life that's unsaved. And it's it's like you take life and you pour it into somebody's cupped hands, but they have their fingers apart like a sieve and the life just runs right through. It's unsaved. It's lost. A drunk gets drunk. 
He falls asleep in his stupor, and he doesn't wake up till the next day, and everything between the time of his unconsciousness to the time of his waking is lost. But what about all the other ways that we can dissipate our lives? And they just flow through our, our fingers and our duties and our responsibilities and our, uh, uh, our potential uh, services to God are lost because we just give ourselves to consuming our, our dissipations, our dissipations. I used to think I was free from that sin. And I've come to believe it's probably the greatest sin of my life. And I'm, I'm not sure that it isn't the greatest sin of the country of America and her people. We are in bed with dissipation. That's, that's our favorite thing. We just dissipate constantly. If you stop... If you say, well, I'm not going to go to the movie. No, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I think I'll actually go help this person. I think I'll go do this. I think I'll go. If we turn away and we do that, pretty soon everybody's going to say, well, what an idiot. They're giving up their life for that Jesus. And they're right. They're giving up that temporary life. For their Jesus. Where do you see yourself in this? Where do you register to the world around you as different? Has the time already passed in your life for the filling up of your dissipation? Young people, high school students, young adults, children, old people, Has the time passed, or are you still dissipating? Charles Spurgeon says, Would God that we had never wrought the will of the Gentiles at all! Some young people foolishly say that they must have a little space in which they can see life. Ah, those of you who have been converted in after years regret that you ever saw what men call life which is but the alias for corruption and death. Any old person here want to testify to the young people about how wonderful those dissipating corruptions they participated in were when they were young? Anybody want to stand and give a word about it? And what's interesting is we set the the trajectory It gets more and more difficult as time goes on. Things that I dealt with when I was younger, I don't really have so much of a problem with now. And things that I let have reign when I was younger, guess what? There's where I have my problems. He says, don't fear their intimidation. You'll get maligned. Don't fear their intimidation. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Jesus, set Jesus aside in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So you thought give an account for the hope that is in you verse was made for you to, because people are going to ask us, right, when we're on the train and when we're in the, when we're at, in the break room. People ask you at the soccer game, hey, could you give me an account of the hope that's in you? Anybody have that happen to you? Listen to the context of this. When they malign you, give them an answer for the hope that's in you. There's the time to testify about Jesus. I'm all for you testifying at the soccer game. I'm all for you testifying at the break room. Trust me, I'm all for it. But... It sounds to me like in the, in the context of their maligning of you, they're asking you for a testimony. Yikes! Anybody know 
the first martyr, Stephen? In the context of tossing rocks at his head, they were asking him to give witness. (laughs) And what did he do? He gave witness. And were there any results? Did anybody receive anything good that day? (laughs) We all did. And Paul says, I stood and watched the coats. And you know that every time he said that, can you imagine? I held their coats, and he gave witness to me. He testified to me. That's when we're ready. (laughs) It's not the time. I'm thinking about it, frankly. I'm just wanting to say, go away. Stop maligning me. Stop thinking I'm weird. When in actuality, I could be saying something like, mock me if you must. Jesus Christ is life to me. It's not complicated. I don't have much to say. May God forgive you. Jesus Christ is life to me. We were called for the very purpose that we might inherit a blessing. And our testimony to our enemies may prove to be the message that introduces them to life. Lastly, and I'll be brief, the last thing is the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Verse 12, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal as if something strange were happening to you. But in the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer. Is that why people are reviling you? Because you murdered somebody or you're a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler? Don't, don't, be that, don't let that be the occasion for their getting after you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The hearers of this would have been familiar with the Old Testament passages. In fact, the the second to last verse is a quote from the Old Testament. But the one before it would have probably rung in their minds similar to the passage from Ezekiel. Um, So, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. In Ezekiel, God sends his messenger with a marker into his people's presence, and he sends, them th- he sends them through all the people, and he says, now all of the ones who are vexed by wickedness, all of the ones who see the wickedness and are vexed by this wickedness, put and who are, who are hurt and, and, a, and a, a do not like it, put a mark on them, mark them. And so they go, the messenger goes through and he marks all the people who are struggling against evil. <laughs> he marks them all. And then God turns to his other messengers and he says, now you, the rest of you, you go in and you slaughter everybody who doesn't have a mark. Men, women, and children, slaughter them all. Everyone who doesn't have a mark. God is holy. Then he says, one more thing. Don't start at the outside of the city. Go right into the temple and start the slaughter there. 
Judgment first comes to the household of God. First to us. First to us. But if it is only with difficulty that the righteous can be saved, well, what have we been reading about but that our lives, if we are turning away from sin and turning toward what is good, our lives are going to be difficult. And it's through difficulty that we are saved. But if it's only with difficulty that we are saved, what will be the result for people who are not saved and who are lost? If we have difficulty in this world, what will be the result when they stand before the holy God and receive his judgment? And we all should be just warned, sobered. That's why he says, be sober. Be sober. If it is with difficulty that the righteous endure the discipline of the loving, holy, heavenly Father, how will it fare with the wicked under his just, terrible, and final wrath? Where do you see yourself in this? Where do you see yourself in this? Do you see that suffering for the Christian is inextricably bound up in his turning from evil to good? Do you rejoice in your suffering with Jesus? Do you have any concept of suffering? Have you done any turning away that would bring about suffering in your life? Are you entrusting your soul to a faithful creator and doing what is right? He is a rewarder of those who seek him. (laughs) And the reward is good. It's eternal. He's a rewarder of those who seek him. Oh, seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we have the potential of, of having life at all because it is from your hand. Lord, have mercy on us, please. Would you work in us both to will and to do that which is pleasing in your sight? Would you awaken our hearts, men, women, children? Would you awaken our hearts to our own condition and our own need and cause us to find life in Christ Turn us from evil, Father, and turn us to good. And thank you that we can participate with Jesus in the suffering of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.